We'll start back in a few moments for our question and answer period. Um, just um, have heard during lunch that uh, we have a, a birthday uh, boy in our midst, uh, Mark uh, Gettle's birthday is today. <laughs> Happy birthday, Mark. I hope everyone has enjoyed lunch. Next week, Sophie Forstrom will present, Is Water Flow from the Old Man River Headwaters Declining? Uh, just to remind, just some reminders, the upcoming sessions are listed on the SACPA's website. And um, also there's the audio and podcast that can, um, on that website as well. Uh, just note that the suggestion box uh, is available for audience ideas and comments. As well, uh, memberships to SACPA are $25 per year, $5 for students. So as we begin the question and answer period, <clears throat> we just invite you to ask questions at the podium with the microphone to the side of the room. And I see we have one fellow. And just state your name, make any um, short topical uh, question or comments and then one or two respectful um, questions. And then following your, your question, just please return to your seat. So please join me in welcoming Bruce Wilson back. Now it's on, thank you. I'm Everett and thank you for your presentation. I see there in the middle there, it says, how can federal and provincial governments make Canada a leader? Having watched the news lately, the uh, fossil fuel extracting people cannot pay their municipal tax. Well, I also believe that when you put more oil on the market, the price will go down. Should we stop or slow down development of fossil fuel extraction? That's my question. So let, let me just uh, repeat this. Should we stop uh, fossil fuel development or should we slow down production? Is that the, the, the thrust of your question? Yeah, I, I truly believe we need to move rapidly towards decarbonization. And so it is, and, and I talked about that a little bit over lunch. What should companies be doing a company that has an eye to the future, not, not based on any sense of altruism or duty towards the planet, but a company that simply has its eye on the future and said, will I be a viable investment, a durable investment in the next 10, 20, 30 years? And, and this is a question that occupied Shell and still does. You know, they want to be a quote unquote world-class investment, but increasingly banks are being dissuaded from uh, investing or, or uh, forwarding capital for developments to oil and gas companies. Investors, individual investors, corporate investors, uh, across the board uh, are divesting or the, the, the money is, is slowing down. And so companies that have an eye to the future will diversify, must diversify, because they will find that their market erodes. So. To the question of should they, yes, I, I believe that organizations like tech, uh, rather than looking at the frontier mind, could do wonderful things. I think they're a great company. In fact, I, I'm, uh, my home is in Kimberley, uh, where Tech Cominco uh, operated a mine for 100 years. 
there is a great deal that they can do to support industry, the new legacy going forward, and I think their money would be better invested in that direction. I think what they will find is that they in invest in frontier, their value will erode. On that point alone, they should think twice about it, uh, and I think the, the provincial government needs to do the same. So it is, uh, you know, an unfortunate truth that, that uh, this investment will, will happen. Hi, Leona Jacobs, <coughs> thanks for your talk. Um, so the um, government, the present government in Alberta, and various other places across Canada, is a populist government. Mm. Um, speaking to a base that has certain uh, beliefs. So what my curiosity is, is in these countries, in Orkneys, Ireland, et cetera, et cetera, yep. that have gone down the path of rethinking things. Um, what was the recency effect? Because, and I say this because some of the rabble that I'm exposed to, um, I, my impression is that these folks are still, um, we're not far enough away from the collapse. The, the rec like 2014-ish, was when the, the, the downturn happened here in Alberta. We're not far enough away from that for people to realize that maybe we won't go back to that, go back to pre-2014. So what was, what was the gap between whatever downturn happened in these countries and the realization that they had to do something differently? What's the gap? Interesting question. Um, <clears throat> first of all, I should say that uh, governments should not be talking to their base. They should be talking to the science. Um, it, it is a fact that if you look at the United States government, uh, you only have to look at the, the denial that's, that's coming out of uh, the White House and then compare and contrast that with the frenzied activity that's happening by the military. The, the, the military are not in the business of denying facts, they're in the business of acting on those facts and making preparations, making preparations for a variety of, of things that will happen due to instability mass climate migrations from people coming from places that aren't as fortunate as Canada. And so that, that is what they should be talking to. What happened in, in uh, Europe? And, you know, I, I listened to a podcast recently, Jigar Shah said, well, Europe's about 10 years ahead of North America in, in terms of taking action on this, and, and we, need to, we need to close that gap rapidly. So what... There are, I think there was a change in the conversation. Uh, you only need to look at a, a newspaper like The Guardian, which was very clear. They said, we have moved beyond uh, talking about climate skepticism. And anybody who uh, now looks at the wealth of facts and the fact that 98 point some percent of scientists are totally aligned around the message of climate change, um, those are climate deniers. And so there was a change in the mentality, which was, it's just happening. We need to deal with it. How do we do this? Where's the opportunity? And I, I think that Aberdeen, for example, in Scotland, which uh, was proud to portray itself as the oil and gas capital of Europe, is excitedly now portraying itself as the wind, offshore wind capital of Europe and the hydrogen hub. Uh, it's about opportunity. If you, whatever reason you're doing this for, you want to save the planet, to save your job, uh, or, or, you know, realize the tremendous profits that surely should be made from this, then Yes, and I think 
there has been a better job of grasping opportunity, and I think that's because there has been a better job of communicating the opportunity. And so far, we're not doing a very good job of communicating. That's the biggest reason for me. Bev, <coughs> Bev Mendel Atherstone, thank you for your talk. Uh, my father was a civil engineer. We're the best. <laughs> he, th he thought, he thought so too. Um, so about 35 years ago, our son's best friend, Carl Meyer, was in a science fair, in the science fair with his hydrogen car. So we know that this idea has been around for a long time. My questions for you relate to the, the, the whole uh, efficiency of the hydrogen and how it works. So you talked about the mo mobility for the trucks being larger, <clears throat> mobility for the trucks, and hydrogen was an option for heavier vehicles. Um, so my questions in regard to that are why trucks, not cars, and does it have, and I'm going to ask all my questions at once. Why trucks, not cars? Is it because they are bigger and they can hold the hydrogen? And this, then the second question is, does the energy, the electricity used to create the hydrolysis, is that efficient in relation to the hydrogen power released? And the third question is, okay, so you might have to <laughs> what was the third question? There is a third question. But go ahead with those two. Let's take the first two and we'll come back to your third question <laughs> when you, uh, yeah, it, it, it's absolutely fascinating. Hydrogen has been around forever and uh, I, I think it was one of the energy secretaries in the United States that, that said, you know, the one sure thing you can say about hydrogen is it's, it's, it'll have a bright, bright future tomorrow and then tomorrow it'll have, you know, and so on. And actually, Jules Verne, in his book, The Mysterious Island, I think it was written in about 1876 or something like that, actually there's a passage in there where he said that one day the world will be powered by hydrogen and oxygen. And it was just this feeling that this has been coming a long time. But now there is a confluence of technologies. These things converge in ways that are amazing. You know, you have the uh, technology advancement, the falling cost of uh, renewable energy. You, you have uh, advancements in nanotechnology and, and, and science and a, a, a raft of things that have come together to give hydrogen its, you know, its moment. I, I really believe it is its moment. It packs a punch too, 120 megajoules per kilogram. That is uh, almost yeah, three or four times greater than gasoline. It, it, it has high energy density um, uh, on, a, on a density basis. And so it's capable of delivering very high heats, which makes it great for steel making uh, or directly for what they call DRI steel. Um, and also, you know, it's, it, one thing I should explain is that hydrogen-powered vehicles are actually battery vehicles. You have battery electric vehicles where, you know, the, the battery is charged at a point of charging and goes with the vehicle. And with a fuel cell electric vehicle, you have hydrogen and you use that hydrogen through a fuel cell to create current and actually heat. And, and so you're creating the electricity as you go. The fact of the matter is that they can exist together. Battery electric vehicles are better for the smaller cars or for the shorter journeys. The, uh, you know, the, the public vehicles or, or school buses, things that have a finite journey, yeah, relatively short uh, radius. 
when you go to big trucks, big rigs, a Tesla truck doesn't work. What they actually said was, if a Tesla truck was to drive through the American Midwest and it needed a charge, it would suck the power from about 4,000 houses. Now, how does it do that successfully? And it does it with a four-ton battery. So the fact of the matter is, hydrogen, uh, a hydrogen tank for a big rig like the, the one I showed you might be 50 kilos, not four and a half tons, and it will generate uh, not only generate the, the electricity it needs to power that rig, but it will fuel in about 10 minutes. Whereas if you had a, a battery electric truck, it would take a substantial amount of time. So horses for courses, there, there are areas where they're both applicable. And what was the third one? This one, hmm? ancillary to this. So the electrolysis that's needed to separate that. Oh, the efficiency. So the efficiency is actually surprisingly high. It's about 75% and getting better. Uh, so the efficiency of electrolysis, of course, when you're using hydrogen as an energy vector and you keep converting and converting, you're going to lose power. But that's not the only way to look at it. Look, look, look at curtailment, for example. Look at the fact that, you know, when the sun's shining mm -hmm. and you, don't, you can't use all that power, you're actually, you know, it's, it's lost unless you... Uh, unless you convert it into an energy vector, then it's, the opportunity cost is close to zero. Is it an <coughs> internal cycle so that it creates electricity and then the electricity it creates could do the electrolysis? Well, yeah, you can do that. You can, you can electrolyze the water and create the hydrogen, yeah, and store the, and store the hydrogen. You can continue to do that. And, and just let me make the point, it's far easier to store atoms, as in hydrogen, than it is to store electrons. I think there's some. Yeah. Yeah. Question was, if if you're driving down the road with the hydrogen in the back of your truck, yep. are you driving a bomb? No, absolutely not. Mm. It just behaves differently. No, it's it's a great question. It behaves differently from gasoline. But if you look at you look at simulated fires from a gasoline-powered engine and a hydrogen engine. Remember, hy hydrogen is 14 times lighter than air. It goes up the way. Yeah. I would, let me just say this, most of the people that died in the Hindenburg were not burned. Yeah, the people use that, uh, that analogy, it's not the case. Thanks uh, for your presentation, I'm Trevor Page. I was very pleased to see that uh, you had the, well, the Sustainable Development Goals slide up there, which I presented last week. And we really talked, though, about two of the goals, climate change, hunger, and then because the goals aren't really working, migration, yes. which is a major issue now and set to become much larger. Indeed. I'm not sure I agree with you, though, on uh, your, your uh, response to a question on... Um, what we do about it. I mean, the fact is that uh, within the Western democratic system, uh, governments and political parties do respond to their base. They're the ones that elect them, not the scientists or uh, multinational companies that are moving with the science. So we have got to take note of, of what the people think. And it was clear that uh, here in southern Alberta and right in this room, 
we have lots of climate deniers. Yep. But my question is that, and I was glad to see your uh, World Economic Forum slide up there too. Right before the World Economic Forum, one of the world's top conservationists, David Attenborough, was asked what should be done. And he said, well, we keep putting it off, we keep putting it off, but really I think the only thing that we can do now is hope that President Xi Jinping of China will actually say, look, China is approaching climate change and taking action not for any, any um, moral duty, sense of duty, because it's in our national interests. And if he says that and does that, the rest of the world will follow. And I wonder if you have any comments on that approach. Well, absolutely. I, I, I think uh, every nation is, is driven by a national interest. And in fact, I, I've been involved in the review for NR Canada, Natural Resources Canada, on their assessment of, uh, of climate adaptation. And, you know, climate adaptation is absolutely in our natural, uh, national interests. Um, there are a multitude of reasons why we need to act. Um, you talked about migration. There's a report by the World Bank that was issued uh, last year or maybe just the end of 2018 called Groundswell. And it told of the, the, the first climate migrations that will surely happen. They talked about you know, 85 million people on the move internally in, in three different locations. And that number continues uh, to be revised upward because uh, we, we see that people in areas such as the Sahel, the Sub-Saharan Africa, I talked to the UN representative there. He said, look, there's uh, 10 countries, 300 million people. Most of them are schooled in European languages. There's no opportunity for them there. Where do you think they're going? They're moving to Europe. The national interest abounds. Uh, we need to have, encourage, be able to promote resilience in place. We need to perfect the systems here in Canada so that our foreign aid or international aid can be effective towards these people. They don't serve their own interests well by moving, but you can understand why. So there, there are a multitude of reasons why. And, and just let me speak to the base, just come back to that. Yes, we need to listen to the base, provided the base has the facts, provided the base is, is sufficiently communicated to on the realities of the situation. That is a citizen's assembly. That's where we get to. We get to an informed citizenry. When our citizenry is not informed, we're in trouble. Okay, we'll just, um, just have slightly over 10 minutes uh, for questions. So just to ask for... Um, the questions and answers to be kept a, a little short. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for your presentation. Welcome. John Kalpas. I'm an agriculturist, and I've been thinking about this from a totally different direction. Okay. Uh, I figured that, well, I was thinking in terms of replacing our present fossil fuels with eco-based fuels. And to do, well, to do that, basically corn and oilseed crops or ethanol and synthetic diesels and so forth. And to do that in the short term, we would have to crop every North American acre to those, uh, to those crops, displacing every bit of 
food production. Well, maybe we can import our food. Right. Well, we'd still need bunker oil to get the stuff here. Right. Anyway, the other thing is how much of this is natural? There are some proponents of uh, that the uh, global warming curve or the curve of the temperature is actually ahead and preceding the <coughs> carbon curve. Right. Uh, and it's you know caused by orbital things and the natural global cyclical thing over a period of 134 years. So, so thanks for your question. I, let me answer that one first. Natural cycles, and there are many different types of cycles within the, the, the warming and cooling of the planet depending upon the aspect of the Earth and, and a number of things that uh, you know, we see as very long-term variations. They have all been filtered out. They have been filtered out and taken into account. Our models get better and better and better. Anybody who's been involved in the oil and gas business knows about simulations, and our simulations get better. They, so I, I, I do want to encourage you to think about the fact that going forward, there is a sufficient weight of science on this to, to truly understand that, and governments are taking action based on that. Now let me address your, your, your question of the ethanol, and it, it has been spoken about many times before, and indeed, there is such uh, a conflict between food crops and, and producing ethanol that it, it becomes unviable. But what is viable is what we call power to X. Power to X solutions, and power to X, X meaning a number of different things. It could be power to hydrogen, it could be power to syngas, it could be power to methanol, uh, methanol is a great hydrogen carrier. So there's, there's a multitude of syngases that can be produced. Before hydrogen economy really takes off, we can produce from hydrogen and direct air ca uh, carbon capture. So, so why go to carbohydrate sources when it's right there in front of us? I just forgot to ask about the cost-benefit ratio of producing hydrogen. Let me just answer that one and say uh, the, 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 the cost of doing nothing, the cost of failing to decarbonize, will, uh, it will basically scuttle the, the Albertan economy. And, and so you have to take that cost into account. But all the analysis shows that for every dollar that's invested in the energy transition in future fuels and creating this new mm -hmm. legacy, you'll reap $6 in return. So $1 trillion. Mm -hmm. Will will get you in excess of six trillion dollars return, and, and those are the figures we need to keep in mind. This will be a one answer from me, I think, to I'll my try and keep very short, short question. Yeah. Okay. Uh, most of the, my questions were answered just as I was standing here. The the what I'd like to see, and you and maybe it's out there. Maybe I missed you talking about it. A model that shows that we could be changing overnight, but of course it'd have to be like, well, like you mentioned, there would be not enough electricity to run all the Euclids, all the great big machinery that's running. And when I look at the car lots full of gasoline and diesel vehicles, we can't get rid of those overnight. Is there a model happening at all that says this could could be built and go exponential just because uh, you have to b build a machinery to do the, uh, to have the, uh, have the hydrogen to run this vehicle that's gonna take care of 
running my tractor on the, in the field, doing the transporting, and all, the, all of that. I'm going to call it off at that because of time. It's a good one. Yeah, and, and their Hydrogen Council just issued a report very recently, and it looked at, uh, I'm going to say something like 41, 43 sectors, and in 22 of those sectors, it said hydrogen is competitive right now. And, you know, and then it gave the, the degrees of competitiveness and the timeline for that. So really clear on, on where, where it could be effective now and where it's going to be effective in the next 10 years and where we need to put the investment in. Uh, in, in terms of the mobility side of it, I, you know, I, I want to push that less than, than the, what's called the static use of it. That market is four times larger. Mobility is about 20%. The static use of hydrogen uh, is, is about 80%, and that's power and heat. It's solving the intermittency of, of renewables. It's the feedstock for existing plants. For example, Shell in, in Germany is using a 10 megawatt electrolyzer to demonstrate that they can take green hydrogen into the refining business, depress the You want to talk about a cleaner barrel, a better barrel? You know, uh, this is my old company, but still I recognize what they're doing there, and they're depressing their carbon footprint there. The static market is huge for this. Uh, domestic market, uh, what they call any farms in Japan. Japan's going to be the first uh, Olympic Games to showcase hydrogen, and they have a domestic system in place already. So let's focus on static first of all. For the transition, something like methanol is good, or, or other kind of sin fuels that can be manufactured from hydrogen. There's uh, lots of potential. Please go ahead. Thanks, Bruce. Uh, Ian Hurdle. Um, in the 60s and 70s, the Alberta uh, federal government supported the development of steam uh, extraction for the oil sands. So when I was driving into town yesterday from the ski hill, I saw all these heavy vehicles tolling, wind blades, gearboxes, generators, and I'm going, we have all this heavy equipment skill in Alberta, what can we do to nudge the people that govern us to think positively about that, and um, us building them here? Now, you, you, when you talk about heavy equipment, you, you're talking about the manuf why can't we manufacture that here? Why indeed not? Why can't we, uh, you know, make that part of our industry? Like, let me just uh, add that we can do this by degrees uh, in terms of big trucks, big rigs. Uh, there's a company called Lamco, and uh, you know, forgive me, it's in the UK too, which is why they're 10 years ahead of uh, North America. But it allows, it allows you to piggyback a hydrogen system on a diesel so that you can get, you can dial in a 20, 30% reduction. And, and that's particularly useful for existing fleets. The fact of the matter is, if you're running a hauling company, you're not going to change over to big rigs overnight. You might plan for that in, you know, over a space of 10 or 15 years. But there are ways that you can do that right now to make inroads. Calling the windmills that are being put up at Pincher Station, so why can't we build those? <laughs> why not? Why not? Okay, next Thank you, Larry Alford. I remember Ballard Power. In, in the last few decades was the biggest thing since sliced bread on the stock exchanges. Can you comment on what happened there too soon to, I'd just love your thoughts. Thank you. Or 20 years ago, um, and uh, yeah, their, their stock price went up 60% over the last month because they've partnered, no, 
Um, yeah, they, uh, because there is tremendous faith in what they're doing, yes, if you, if you take a look at that, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. Uh, uh, Randy McEwen was talking about that recently on TV, about the partnering they're doing with China. You know, when we talk about China's not doing much, no, it's throwing its weight into these new technologies and the market is beginning to sit up and say, remember, there's a finite amount of investment money. If it's going into hydrogen, if it's going into these new technologies, it means it's, it's draining out of areas that investors don't see as durable. Sir. As one who saw the uh, launching of the original Queen Mary in <laughs> 1936 in Clydebank, Oh, which was bombed to hell during the Second World War. And subsequently, I sailed in her from New York to Southampton in 1945. I look back over all these years in between and the progress we've made. And here you've asked a question, and nobody has really given you an answer to that. Uh, how can the federal and provincial governments make Canada a leader? Well, as you said, it requires a grassroots movement of some kind with the support of people like yourself who have set an example in what is possible. And that's all I want to say. And to say there's always something good comes out of Scotland, even if it comes to Canada. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. That's, that's great. Thank you, everyone, for your questions. And uh, Bruce, thank you very much for your, your presentation. My pleasure. Um, there is one, sorry, there is um, a question we asked our speakers to leave us with a take-home question. And I think Bruce alluded to this um, in, uh, at the end of his um, presentation. But uh, Bruce, I'll let you take it away with this take-home question and how you might <coughs> suggest the um, audience can um, can reach out to you with that. Absolutely. Uh, thank you for the opportunity of speaking today. I, I very much enjoy it, and thanks for all your, your, your great questions. It's a dialogue we need to continue. I was talking to a lady in, uh, uh, she runs the Mir Center for Peace in Trail, or in Castlegar. Uh, wonderful woman, and a, it's a great mission there. And, and she said, uh, She's not involved in being consulted on the just transition, though she should. She said, we need to build bridges. We need to end this scapegoatism, this them and us. We're all in this together, and we really all want the same thing, or many of the same things. And so it, it really does come down to how informed we are about and how we have this kind of uh, dialogue of respect and uh, you know optimism, too. So... When we're talking about how can the federal and provincial governments make Canada a leader in tackling climate change, please come at it from your, your own angle and say what you think and what you want and what you'd like to see. I, you know, there's a lot of things. I, I live in Kimberley. I'd like to take the bus from Kimberley to Calgary. I can't do that anymore. That, that seems ridiculous in this day and age. For I'd like to jump on a train. I, I, I've traveled in Europe and I traveled 300 miles an hour or 300 kilometers an hour on the German system. It's awesome. And, and it is a fabulous way to do it. Do we want things like that? So have a think about anything, well-being, how do we want to treat people? Uh, there, there, there are so many aspects of our, of our life that, that are connected by this, and, I, and I'd love to hear your answers because that informs 
my dialogue going forward. So we'll publish my email address. Yes, we, uh, we can, I think we can, sorry. Yes, we can, Bruce, sorry. I think we can put that up on the, uh, the website. And um, if you can just maybe give, you know, just note what your email address is now, and people might quickly All right. jot it down. Okay, if you want to jot this down, um, it is bruce.b.wilson at gmail.com. That's bruce.b for bravo, uh, dot wilson at gmail.com. I'd be glad to hear from you. Yeah. Great. Thank you, everyone, for attending, and thank you again, Bruce, for a really wonderful presentation. Thank you.